Section seventeen of Heroines of Fiction by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book one, chapter seventeen. Thackeray's Good Heroines. It will have been noted by the attentive reader that the bad heroines of Thackeray had all some virtue, which, if not quite a saving virtue, was still such as to move them to good actions at times, and to keep them from being wholly reprobate. Blanche Amory, who was less direly wicked than either Becky Sharp or Beatrix Esmond, had rather less of this virtue than they, and being vain, where they were ambitious, was less moved to occasional kindness. In this she was truly divined, and in her Thackeray marked a great advance in the study of the bad heroine, quite as great as that he made in the study of the good heroine, when he learned that she was never altogether good, but was sometimes cruel and jealous and even mean and was very apt to be capricious he was once considered a terrible cynic and i think this notion of him which now seems so droll must have come from women unwisely dissatisfied that he did not find the best of their sex altogether angelic at any rate he was the discoverer so far as any man may be the discoverer of anything of the fallibility of angels but he had not the courage of his facts quite and when he had allowed the defects of their qualities to be seen he felt bound to colour these qualities to a yet more heavenly hue and so was in danger of undoing all the good of his discovery One, i have already supposed that when thackeray's good heroines are mentioned lady castlewood helen pendennis and laura bell would come first to mind it has been pretty well agreed that amelia sedley sweet and kind and true as she is cannot be counted with the others because she is too passive too insipid and yet i think a good word might be said for her nine-tenths of the kindly people in the world are no more positive than she goodness in fact is not a very positive thing or not nearly so positive as evil and in the things that lie next to active goodness as patience quiet courage devotion to an ideal amelia is very well her devotion does not avail her with the lovers of lovers because it is for an unworthy ideal and it is counter to the devotion of another who is of the highest desert but the fact that george osborne was shallow and false does not impeach the wisdom of the woman whom he deceived and who remains constant to his memory so many years and the fact that major dobbin so preeminently merits her love is no just censure of her refusal it is a disadvantage of thackeray's method that his conception of a situation does not reach his reader clear and simple it is so darkened with advice about it that the reader is not able to judge it without prejudice he must free his mind of all sorts of suggestion from the author before he can fairly judge it but if he once does this in the case of amelia sedley i think he will find her neither so weak nor so silly as he must from the impression given him as it were at second hand the situation left to take its chance with the reader is of a delicate pathos and not of that serio-comic cast which it otherwise wears this is something like saying that thackeray imagined his things better than he represented them and i am afraid that this is what i mean i think that sometimes he changed his mind about them and fought them as the actors say 
to a conclusion different from that which he originally had in view this appears to me particularly true of the situation in henry esmond where without knowing the inside facts i believe that when he first imagined esmond in love with beatrix he meant him to be either fortunate or unfortunate in his love of her with no ulterior view for him his love for lady castlewood and hers for him affects me as an afterthought and though thackeray achieved a novelty by it he did not create beauty as one always does when one follows the line of probability it is of course possible that a man may fall in love with a woman ten years his senior after he has been in love with her daughter and of course such a woman may have cherished a passion for him at first unconscious and always silent and having promoted his love for her daughter by every means in her power may end by marrying him herself i say the thing is possible but it is so ugly so out of nature that it is not less than revolting and therefore i cannot believe that the case was first imagined so having finally imagined it so lady castlewood's creator begins well back in her duplex personality to prepare the reader for the unhandsome denouement the story is told by esmond and very early in it he dwells upon the beauty of his sweet mistress his dear mistress and more and more repeats his sense of it with an increasing emphasis upon the surprising youthfulness which survives in the mother of a married son and grown-up daughter apart from this perfunctory admiration of her charms however esmond shows her a most interesting and noble character with those limitations which best realize her virtues it is altogether in character that a beautiful and serious girl should fall in love with a dashing young nobleman like castlewood that she should be devoted to him and then with just cause resentfully jealous that she should turn in her despair of him to the friendless little esmond who has come to live with them and should spend her wounded and outraged love in motherly tenderness upon him that she should rely increasingly upon his truth and courage and love him as an eldest son that later when he has become a man and has been wounded in her husband's fatal quarrel she should come to him sick and in prison to upbraid him for her loss it is a great scene where she does so and much admired though i doubt if it is always admired for what is finest in the subjective drama namely her wish to punish herself in him for the fact that she had really ceased to love her husband she does not really suspect esmond of failing castlewood or abetting him in his quarrel but somehow she must take out her remorse and womanlike she takes it out of the creature she loves best sometimes she must begin to be conscious that she no longer loves esmond quite as a mother of a young girl it could be supposed that she might continue ignorant of the nature of her feeling but lady castlewood is a mature woman with all the experience of a wife the false note is first sounded when in this necessary consciousness she tries to promote his passion for her daughter which would be impossible i know that all sorts of idiotic and detestable self-sacrifice is preached in fiction but this is a little too repulsive for belief the imagination of the reader refuses to join with that of the author who is left henceforth to manage the affair alone and no greater proofs of his power could be shown than he gives in certain ensuing passages of the story 
to humour the conceit we may suppose that lady castlewood is doing penance for her own passion in favouring esmond with beatrix but in such a scene as that with the duke of hamilton just before his intended marriage with her daughter she rises into a nobler function than any mere suffering and shows herself at her loveliest and best beatrix had just put on a diamond necklace which esmond had given her for a wedding gift when the duke was announced he looked very black at mr esmond to whom he made a very low bow indeed and kissed the hand of each lady in his most ceremonious manner look my lord duke says mistress beatrix advancing to him and showing the diamonds on her breast diamonds says his grace hm they seem pretty they are a present on my marriage says beatrix from her majesty asked the duke from our cousin colonel henry esmond says beatrix taking the colonel's hand very bravely who was left guardian to us by our father and who has a hundred times shown his love and friendship for our family the duchess of hamilton receives no diamonds but from her husband madam says the duke may i pray you to restore these to mr esmond beatrice esmond may receive a present from our kinsman and benefactor my lord duke says lady castlewood with an air of great dignity kinsman and benefactor says the duke i know of no kinsman and i do not choose that my wife should have for a benefactor a uh, my lord says colonel esmond i am not here to bandy words says his grace frankly i tell you that your visits to this house are too frequent and that i choose no presents for the duchess of hamilton from gentlemen that bear a name they have no right to my lord breaks out lady castlewood mr esmond hath the best right to that name of any man in the world and tis as old and honourable as your grace's my lord duke smiled and looked as if lady castlewood was mad that was so talking to him if i called him benefactor said my mistress it is because he has been so to us the noblest the truest the bravest the dearest of benefactors he would have saved my husband's life from mohun's sword he did save my boy's and defend him from that villain the title we bear is his if he would claim it tis we who have no right to our name not he that's too great for it his father was viscount of castlewood and marquis of esmond before him and he is his father's lawful son and true heir and if he is content to forego his name that my child may bear we love and honour him and bless him under whatever name he bears and here the fond and affectionate creature would have knelt to esmond but that he prevented her and beatrix running up to her with a pale face and a cry of alarm embraced her and said mother what is this tis a family secret my lord duke says esmond poor beatrix knew nothing of it nor did my lady till a year ago and then in her touching way and having hold of her daughter's hand and speaking to her rather than my lord duke lady castlewood told the story which you already know lauding up to the skies her kinsman's behaviour on his side mr esmond explained the reasons that seemed sufficiently cogent with him why he should remain as he was colonel esmond and marquis of esmond my lord says his grace with a low bow permit me to ask your lordship's pardon for words that were uttered in ignorance and to beg for the favour of your friendship i shall esteem it a favour my lord if colonel esmond will give away the bride and if he will take the usual payment in advance he is welcome says beatrix stepping up to him and as esmond kissed her she whispered oh why didn't i know you before 
lady castlewood in fine seems to me a beautiful creation of which too much is asked if she could have been left quietly a widow and esmond been allowed or required to console himself for beatrix with some other or no other if need be she would have remained one of the most perfect figures in fiction but as it is her loveliness is blotted her perfection is marred by the part so improbably attributed to her women marry a second time and they are not unapt to marry men younger than themselves in such cases but lady castlewood is apparently the only woman who brought up a boy as her son and after she had witnessed his unrequited love for her daughter whom she tries to have marry him marries him herself it does not seem either nice or true if it were true that would go a great way towards consoling one for its not being nice two thackeray cannot be called the inventor of the superstition that people who are crossed in love when young keep their thwarted passion tenderly and sacred in mind during a long married life with partners they have never loved but he preached it much and often he preached it in the case of mrs pendennis who is supposed to live in respect and awe for the man she married while keeping green the memory of her lost love in her heart this may be possible but it does not seem probable and it is not to my mind pathetic but merely sentimental it does not indeed take so much from helen pendennis as the abnormal passion attributed to lady castlewood takes from her but it adds nothing to our sense of her loveliness and the probability of the situation is not heightened by her having her dead lover's little daughter by the second marriage he had made come to live with her as her own child that must render it even a little more difficult for her unloved but honoured husband it is supposed to happen however and the little girl who is brought up with arthur pendennis like a sister is laura bell the heroine jointly with blanche amory of the novel named pendennis after him and the heroine who finally marries him she does so after much misgiving and after foregoing the love of a nobler man yet her affection for pendennis has borne the test not only a familiar association with him from childhood but also of much wandering and vacillation on his part he is generally pronounced altogether unworthy of her but women have a way of knowing who is worthy of them that may be generally trusted and laura bell is not illogically willing to take arthur pendennis in the end she is a girl of character which is to say of sense and the book in which she figures so greatly to her credit is the effect of a constant good sense such as has rarely found expression in fiction it is a work of far greater mastery than vanity fair and paints the great world with which thackeray loved to deal with a touch altogether lighter and finer its charm is that presence of youth which warms and illumines it youth sometimes spoiled and sometimes unspoiled but still youth with its wide horizons and far perspectives for the purpose of these inadequate studies i have been going through all thackeray's great novels once so familiar to me again and pendennis without any such supreme figure as becky sharp seems to me still his supreme effort especially in respect to its women the ultimate test of greatness in a novel helen pendennis laura bell blanche amory lady clavering fanny bolton miss fotheringay form a group of extraordinary interest and variety and the first of them are the first named
three helen pendennis i have called a sentimentalist and so she is but she is not wholly a sentimentalist only a man can be that she wants to spoil her boy but she knows what is good for him and she wishes him to marry laura she is tolerant of the girl's contempt for his airs and egotisms she even borrows her money to pay his debts and give him a start in life but she finds it hard to forgive her for refusing him still she does forgive her and lives on with her in tender affection and a hope which she loses only when she believes her son guilty of betraying poor little fanny bolton and when she has no thought but of his righting the supposed wrong by marrying the girl this is altogether fine and one of the best parts of the book is that relating to pendennis's sickness where she and laura come up to london and in the delusion of a superior virtue spurn poor fanny from his bedside the whole episode down to the son's quarrel with his mother for her mistaken condemnation of fanny is most admirable but out of it all i believe i prefer that exalted moment when helen and laura arrive upon the scene as fanny saw the two ladies and the anxious countenance of the elder who regarded her with a look of inscrutable alarm and terror the poor girl knew at once that pen's mother was before her fanny looked wistfully at mrs pendennis and afterwards at laura there was no more expression in the latter's face than if it had been a mass of stone hard-heartedness and gloom dwelt in the figures of both of the newcomers neither showed any faintest gleam of mercy or sympathy for fanny she looked desperately from them to the major behind them old pendennis dropped his eyelids looking up ever so stealthily from under them at arthur's poor little nurse i i wrote to you yesterday if you please ma'am fanny said trembling in every limb as she spoke and as pale as laura whose sad menacing face looked over mrs pendennis's shoulder did you madam mrs pendennis said i suppose i may now relieve you from nursing my son i am his mother you understand yes ma'am i this is the way to his oh wait a minute cried out fanny i must prepare you for his the widow whose face had been hopelessly cruel and ruthless started back with a little gasp and cry which she speedily stifled he's been so since yesterday fanny said trembling very much and with chattering teeth a horrid shriek of laughter came out of pen's room and after several shouts the poor wretch began to sing a college drinking song he was quite delirious he does not know me ma'am said fanny indeed perhaps he will know his mother let me pass if you please and go in to him and the widow hastily pushed by little fanny and through the dark passage into pen's sitting-room laura sailed by fanny too without a word and major pendennis followed them fanny sat down on a bench in the passage and cried the story seldom rises into so much of pure drama as this thackeray seems rather ashamed of drama and shrugs it away when he can or spoils it by too much chorusing but here we have it almost pure at least for an instant and it makes us wish we had it oftener from him of subjective drama there is a constant abundance and that of laura's high and wise soul is always good and genuine through the whole progress of her love for pendennis with its phases and changes and its total eclipse at one time by her passion for warrington 
she has no other she owns to pendennis that she has had this and that if it had not been for warrington's fatal entanglement she would gladly have married him out of what she knows of pendennis she knows comparatively little that is good and yet somehow she divines his essential goodness and confides her future to it laura is in fact a most generous as well as most sensible creature her relation to money is that of the highest-minded woman she does not want to waste it but she will give it without a care though not without a thought for herself her relation to helen pendennis is wholly beautiful and without idealizing that over-idealizing lady she is utterly devoted to her she makes her tacit criticisms of her but they make no difference in her conduct towards her adoptive mother she has a girl's fondness for the pleasures of the world but she gets only good from it even from such a hardened worldling as blanche amory she gets only good both in her illusion and her disillusion concerning her towards pendennis in his long insincere flirtation with blanche she has a cool contempt which fires into a single instant of jealousy her cruelty to fanny bolton is of ignorant purity it is almost a necessary evil four to have imagined a creature so just and fine and real is a high effect both of mind and heart in thackeray who has a right to be judged as much by laura bell as by becky sharp by ethel newcombe as by blanche amory between those two good heroines of his i should be puzzled which to choose as the better or more importantly as the truer study in girlhood they have both great qualities and i am not going to decide for ethel newcombe because she has more the defects of her qualities and figures on a larger stage though i like to have the limitations of virtue shown and inclined to believe that those are the best portraits in which i find not only the realization of beauty but the suggestion of what is unlovely after all unless a girl comes outright to folly or evil even her potentialities of wrong have their charm and ethel newcombe is the more interesting because at a certain time she is ready to reverse the old saw and count love well lost for the world she does not finally change her mind so much as have it changed for her by events and circumstances and in this she even more than laura bell is like girls in life and justifies herself as a work of the author's highest art End of section seventeen